Welcome to Diner Talks with James. Slide into the booth and let's have conversations we never want to end with friends we never want to leave over food we probably shouldn't be eating. My friends, what is going on? Welcome to another episode of Diner Talks with James. I'm James. What is happening, my friends? I'm super excited to be with you for yet another round at the diner. What you having tonight, friends? What are we doing tonight? Doing a black and white milkshake? That's a personal favorite. What else are we doing? Grilled cheese? You put the ketchup on your grilled cheese? Some people judge me for putting ketchup on my grilled cheese. That's okay. Some people are wrong. But I'm super pumped. We have my man Boris Hyken on the show with me. I've known Boris for a really long time and I'm excited for you all to meet him. Uh, but my friends, I also want you to know before I jump in with Boris, please know that this show is a work in progress. And so I would love to hear from you over at Diner Talks with James on Instagram. Feel free to give a follow over there and shoot me a message. Let me know what you like and what you don't like. Is there something where you're like, hey, I wish you would do more of this or less of this. My friends, I'm still working on making this the best show possible. And I want to make it a show that you want to listen to on a regular basis. So feel free to slide over there and hit me up and let me know some of your thoughts, y'all. All right, let's jump into this episode. Coming out to the stage, sliding into the diner booth, my guy, Boris Hyken. I have known Boris for approximately 10 years. He and I were members of the hip-hop improv team that I started in New, in New York City called North Coast, which means he's got bars, y'all. Uh, he is a delightfully ornery, wonderful man, and I am proud to call him my friend. He is a stand-up comedian. He's also someone who is extremely musically talented, and he has performed all around the country with his stand-up. He's frequently seen uh, in, on Comedy Cellars live from America podcast. Uh, you can see him in a whole bunch of stuff called Bull. Uh, stuff called Bull. That's wrong. You've, you've seen him in things like Bull uh, and then Amazon Prime Red Oak, right? And a whole bunch of really cool stuff that he has been in. He's an incredible man, a great friend, and I'm excited for you to get to know him. And maybe most importantly, my friends, you should follow him on Instagram at uh, the Boris K, I believe is his Instagram. Uh, and uh, because he posts incredible videos of himself routinely flipping omelets like a G. All right, y'all, bring it out right now. My man, Boris Hyken. What's up, buddy? Yeah, what an intro. I feel Let's like I, I should be coming out with like one of those like boxing ring hoods <laughs> or something. I'm pumped. Coming in. Coming I'm, in. I'm ready go. to fight. I'm ready to fight someone after that kind of bump up. I don't know. I got to do some damage. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Boris, what's up, brother? Good to see you, man. Good to see you, too. It's nice. It's a good time also. In the, I know it's normally diner talks. I guess diner, you could do it any time. That's the whole point of the diner, isn't it? Yeah, it is beautiful. Yeah. I do believe that some of the best conversations I have are typically after at the hour of 11 o'clock at diners. But late night. I've, yeah, late night moves. Yeah, yeah. After a gig or something like that, after a show. So you know exactly. the you know the life. You know the life. Living in Brooklyn, New York City, coming growing up in Jersey. Uh, you know the diner life. But better than most, Boris. Yeah, Jersey's got the diner game for sure. For sure. I grew, disco up, fries. I grew up on the diners. <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> the disco fries, a weird Jersey phenomenon, cheese fries with gravy. It's a great product, honestly. They're all right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, shoot, Boris, what is your diner move? What do you typically get when you go to a diner? I mean, usually I'll get an omelet. I know because yeah. I first I, I it depends on the diner because, you know, I make a lot of omelets. So I also, also kind of judge. And let me say right now for like anybody wondering, I know some people would disagree, particularly the French. But an omelet is not where you have a layer of egg and then they just put stuff on and fold it over. That's not an omelet. That's like a sandwich with an egg as the bread or something. An omelet is where it's it's in it's in the omelet. You know what I mean? Like where where you the egg is still wet when you put all the stuff in and it is mm -hmm. all one thing. I even have them put the home fries into the omelet. And then like 80% of the time they say yes. And 20% of the time they're difficult. Wow. And they get, they get a Yelp review talking to, I'll tell you that, uh, those 20%. Yeah. So hang on a second, because I got to be honest with you, Boris. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm now ashamed to admit this to you. I, I believe that an omelet is egg that is, predominantly cooked and then fillings are top and then it's folded over and that melts the cheese. And that's how you get to the omelet. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily know if I agree with this whole omelet thing. And first off, I mean, who are you to like, I have a huge French population that listens to this. This is very insulting. Big, At least you're those big two people huge in Paris. Are you kidding me? Well, I, I, I know how much they love to put ketchup on everything in France. How much they'll put ketchup on their grilled cheese and their eggs. We both lost them in this episode. Don't even kid. Uh, yeah, you're right. Sacre bleu. <laughs> what is it? What's your dream omelet, Boris? Are you uh, are you someone who's putting all the vegetables in there too, and all the meats or all the cheeses? I like a good mix of vegetable. I'll do one meat. It's usually either bacon or sausage or turkey mm -hmm. bacon. And I try to. I got a freezer. I vary it up on the daily with mine. And then when I go out, I'll do sausage more often, just because I more often won't have pork sausage at home. But uh, actually, the, on, I had a road gig this weekend, and we were in New Hampshire. And I got an omelet with crab meat in it and surprisingly delicious. There you go. That's an elevated uh, omelet. I know you don't like for some reason. I if you were to ask me with it before trying it, like shellfish and cheese just doesn't sound right for some reason. And yet I've had it now like in New Orleans, or like omelets with the crawfish or something in it. Mm -hmm. And they'll put cheese in there. And then this one had the lobster in it and they had cheese in there. And it was delightful. Yeah, I actually got yelled at, not yelled at, made fun of uh, on the, <laughs> let me get bougie for a second, uh, on the Amalfi Coast in Italy. Tina and I went to spend a, uh, spend a month in Italy and uh, we, we landed in Rome and rented a car and drove down to the Amalfi Coast and we spent uh, a few days down there. And the very first meal that I had in Italy was lunch at this outdoor, beautiful cafe and and they bring over the fresh made linguine with the clams and 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 I put cheese on it and the woman walked over to me and she said, this is how I know you're an American. <laughs> she said, we <laughs> Wait, do not, did... do we said, she said, we do not put Italians do not put cheese on seafood. Oh, I see. I mean, it, it isn't obvious to me, but also, wait, did you ask for cheese on it or did you like bring your own cheese to the restaurant? No, it's no, there's Parmesan everywhere in Italy. Oh, I see. Um, I see. Yeah. You just Parmigiano, or it's probably Pecorino because technically it's not from the Parmigiano Reggiano region. Okay. Right, um, right. But yeah, but still. <clears throat> so yeah, <laughs> the, all it's, things I uh, learned. Sparkling cheddar, as they say. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I'll put uh, cheese I love on that. all of it for sure.
Yeah, for sure. The uh, the omelet game, you know, this is one where you kind of stepped into with a, with a bit of audacity. All right, now the, I mean, predominantly it, omelets are your form of marketing um, on Instagram, and and you generally, I mean, you you literally will I I fuck the camera and flip an omelet and continue to I fuck the camera throughout the flip like a boss. When did this become your flex, Boris? Uh, you know what? It probably happened when I, I used to work for this startup, as you know, a while ago. And then when I switched to freelance and I was home a lot of mornings, I had the time and ability to make a, a late breakfast and not have a job to go to and flip omelets on camera. There you go. There you go. Uh, I love it. <laughs> the, uh, you know, I'm someone who frequently talks a lot about uh, food quirks. I, I kind of eat pancakes in a somewhat of a unique manner. I eat Rice Krispies in a weird way, a bunch of foods in a weird way. Um, and yeah. I'm wondering, uh, do you, do you have any food quirks? I mean, obviously you make these massive omelets, but you know, that's not necessarily too crazy, but I'm wondering, yeah. you know, is there any, are there any foods that you eat that are weird or do you, do you mash weird, weird foods together? I eat, I definitely eat a lot of foods that people would consider weird. I think a big one for me is my wife would probably say is I eat a lot of ingredients as the meal. So like for instance <laughs> for this podcast, I brought what is a very frequent meal of mine at least probably several times a week which is I have a canned fish that I usually I have a plate because I'm not trying to make a mess on my desk, but I usually just will open it and eat it just straight up over a sink or a garbage can, just so I'm not <laughs> washing any extra plates or nothing. I'm not trying to waste any time here. I got shit to do. I'm trying to eat. And now I will, if I have something with it, maybe I might eat like, uh, like a tomato the way you would eat an apple, something like that, or just cut oh, it up and a, eat slices of it. That's a messy process. You're wearing the well, tomato if you eat it that way. It depends. It depends on the size of the tomato. Sometimes what you do is you can shove the whole thing in your mouth, and then you just got to put two fingers right here to make sure that as you chew it, you don't squirt a bunch of tomato out of the front of your face. <laughs> Otherwise, it's it's a great meal. <laughs> These are things that only professionals know. Uh, like truly tried, like ten thousand hours eating sardines and tomatoes. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've done it wrong enough times to learn the hard way, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but I but I grew up on a lot of like canned fish and stuff like that, and I still love it. And it's very, you know, it's good for you. It's all protein basically, as long as you don't have hypertension or something, because you know there's usually a good amount of salt in it. Right. Sure. Canned yeah. squid, canned squid too. You go to like any ethnic aisle in a grocery store, and they'll have like canned squid, canned like these are sardines, sprats. Love, love canned sprats. What's a sprat? Um, it's, it's like another little fish. It's the it sardines are bigger. My marine biology major is failing me here. That's what canned <laughs> sardines look like, and it's oh, not wow, a he's pretty it sight. Up. It's disgusting. Yeah, on camera, I uh, I don't mean to gross anybody out, but it truly is delicious. Like these are really good, but sprats are maybe my favorite. And as a little kid, like in Ukraine and stuff, like it would just be a piece of bread with some butter and some sprats on it. That was a big, big one. That was it. And just everything's and everything's cold. He's literally put a fork into the can of sardines. He's eating the sardines right now. That's all um, you got to do. <laughs> that's all you got to do. It comes with a plate. Uh, <laughs> <No>. uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. It really is delicious. 
I love it, y'all. I love this. This is this is the real. This is the real diner talks with James right now. We're eating together. Uh, this is amazing. So the <laughs> sardines are incredibly salty. Um, and so do you ever, do you ever also like, do you cook with the sardines as well? Or do you just like, no, I prefer my sardines raw. No, at best what I'll do. Cause I mean, again, this is sort of my go-to when I'm trying not to spend time on cooking a meal, yeah. but if I'm, if I want something a little more, um, well-rounded than pure fish out of a can, <laughs> I might have like, <laughs> I might make like a salad with it. So like they're cold and it comes in oil. So like it comes in olive oil. So I'll just take some like spinach, maybe put like slice some tomatoes or something else on there. And then I'll toss the sardines on top. And then I got my salad with my protein. And honestly, I'm eating it now. Well, so one serve one serving per container has 340 milligrams of sodium, which is not a little bit, but it's not terrible, honestly, compared to certain other fishes. There's like anchovies are way saltier than this. Oh, God. I yeah, think. No. Yeah, if you ate anchovies, I'd really judge you right now. Uh, you would yeah. smell them through the microphone. Is what would happen. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm glad you're not doing anything weird like that. Uh, that's amazing. Actually, so, I, I, I need to add one other thing just because it's a okay. funny story that's relevant. Please do. So when I worked at that startup that I worked at, and this was like a small company at the time, it was maybe like less than 30 employees, and I, I was doing comedy schedules for them. And I needed a, a fish head for a sketch. And I went, it was like not far from, it was not far from Whole Foods in Union Square. And they did not sell, as you might guess, just fish heads. I had to buy a full fish. So sure. I cut off the fish head. I use it for a sketch. And I'm like, I don't want to waste the rest of the fish. This fish was like a good fish. And they had, you're going to think I'm a monster for this, but I, no shame. Um, I took the fish body and they had like a toaster oven at work. And I just straight oh, no. up cooked it in the kitchen in the toaster oven and this poor woman this poor woman who's there was no hr department she was the office manager who was being forced to do double duty as hr and she was so scared of like offending me i think because maybe she thought it was like a cultural thing which you know what it is a little i'll milk that if i got to but um <laughs> but she like took me into a room and was so delicate with me as to not offend me while explaining how uh, like inappropriate it is to be cooking fish from raw in an office, and I was I like felt bad for her. I was just like, listen, you don't have to feel bad about this. Like it's totally reasonable. It won't happen again. My priority happened to me not wanting to waste this fish, and and I was hungry, and so I chose to do it. And I know it's not. I chose to do it. You know, like it's not like I didn't know. I just chose to do it because at the time I wanted to eat this fish more than I wanted to be respectful of everyone else in the office. So <laughs> you made your, you made your choice. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, wow. it won't happen again, but I did it and I don't regret it. That is, I mean, at that point you throw out the toaster oven, I think. Right. Cause I mean, someone can't like come over and like put their, their whole wheat toast in it post giant fish. Right. You're having fish toast after that, which sounds great to you, but not the person mm -hmm. who just wanted a simple piece of whole wheat toast. Yeah, that's a great point. Honestly, hasn't even entered my mind until right now. <laughs> <laughs> and instead, I just gave you an idea of fish toast. Um, the uh, uh, wow, that is a horrific story. I'm, I'm right now. I'm just I'm also picturing the slot 
of the uh, of the toaster with like scales on the side where it like scraped on the way down. And yeah, this is this is quite the visual. And I also love it because knowing your uh, knowing the way offices work, if you had a toaster, you also probably had a refrigerator, maybe even a freezer, both viable options oh. for the fish temporarily. Yeah, yeah, but I was hungry then and now. <laughs> There it is, folks. There it is. Um, <laughs> sometimes you just got to do wrong. You know what I'm saying? You know, sometimes you. Sometimes I'm a bad you boy. <laughs> <laughs> Boris eats tuna fish sandwiches on planes. Um, <laughs> I've eaten. Well, now they don't. You they don't serve their own food, so you got to bring your own. So now yeah. I, I have to. Yeah, I, another fun. Bring your own recently. toaster. <laughs> we flew to California, and I brought boiled eggs onto the flight to eat. And my wife uh, made overnight oats because she, I think, I, I think it was maybe partially out of respect for other people, but also just because she didn't want to eat boiled eggs on the plane. Sure. And they and they spilled, they spilled her uh, overnight oats in the garbage because they were too too much liquid. Oh wow! Yeah. Yeah. Hide, so in the end, stuff in those oats. Yeah, the boiled eggs persevered, and they didn't even know, but they were soft boiled, so there was a little liquid on the inside. Oh, oh extra oh, bad! Oh, that's <laughs> it. That's it. That now we're getting back on the French's good side. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> winning back Boris, over. That's it. I love this, man. So you know, you mentioned that you're that you you know from the Ukraine. So you're born. You were born in the Ukraine. When did you move uh, to? Did you move right to New Jersey? Is that where you moved to? Yeah, we moved straight to Jersey. Okay, in how old were you? I turned seven, like right after we came here. Okay, got you. So at seven, I mean, you still have some memories then uh, of the Ukraine. Yeah, and I visited. You know that expression they say that like when you remember something, you're actually remembering the last time that you remembered it. Have you heard okay. that before? I have not, but I'm oh, fascinated. Well, that's like a real thing. That's kind of how your brain works, where you are actually like your memories are actually simulations that you use to determine decisions in the future. The part of your brain, like the w the way memories work, works the same as fantasizing about the future. Anyway, that's just a fun little tidbit, but I, but I did go, but my point is I went back, um, it's probably like a little over 10 years ago now, but that jogged my memory a lot. You know, I saw the house that I grew up in, which was a real uh, shithole. And uh, I saw it, the playground where I used to play that, that was like, I have a video of it. That's just this giant metal ladder to nowhere that like no child should be climbing. I have a video of like my mom <laughs> begging me to stop and like following me despite herself being scared of shit up this like two, three story ladder. Like it looks ridiculous. You're like, why would a child's playground ever have a metal ladder that goes this high and leads to nothing? Like literally it's a ladder against the thing and you just climb it and that's it. Uh, there was there was a perpetual fire like a bonfire that was perpetually lit outside of our building that i have a, one of my stronger memories is like the fire was actually out but it had hot embers and i think i was like throwing something around and i fell with my palm in it and i just have this memory of like crying and blowing on my hand and running my grandma was a doctor so i just remember just running and blowing on my hand and running to my grandma but it was, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. fond memories jogged. <laughs> 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 
put my and, hand back in the not, fire just for fun. <laughs> yeah, but not to be totally ironic, there are fond memories. Like the place sure. was not in good shape when we lived there, but the city I'm from, it's called Odessa. It's actually like a very famous cultural city. A lot of uh, actually entertainers from Ukraine and Russia come from Odessa. Mm. And like there's like famous steps there and there's museums and a famous opera house. And it's like, you know, it's, it's on the water. So you get a lot of like ports and like trading and things like that, that lead to cultural institutions there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, uh, <clears throat> typically port cities are a little more open-minded as well as like, just like you said, more culture, uh, there's more, yeah. more opportunity sometimes in those places. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's awesome. So when you came, you came when you were seven, you didn't speak a lick of English at the time, correct? I did not. Yeah. What was, uh, that transition had to be fun. Uh, was that something where, uh, is that is that do you remember where you was was childhood frustrating at that time was it hard or was it kind of was it fun was it like how like how was that experience for you i think there were certain things that had their own unique frustrations like um it was honestly more cultural the language difference the only practical difference was i had to go to a different elementary school because the one closer to me didn't offer esl so for first and second grade I went to one elementary school that was a little further away that had ESL classes. And then by third grade, I went to the regular elementary school mm -hmm. that was close to us. And the only I'm trying the one memory I do have is I remember before I knew how to, like, excuse myself to go to the water fountain or do anything. I told my mom that I like didn't have. I needed to bring water with me. And this was before, like, I don't know if it's before bottled water. I feel like there must have been, but before it was like a common thing maybe, or like, but she gave me a baby bottle and was basically just, and I wasn't a baby anymore, but she gave me a baby bottle where like, she was just, you know, just twist the nipple off and drink from it. And kids in elementary school aren't going to be that understanding of like, well, he's twisting the nipple off and drinking from it. So I just remember being <laughs> laughed at. Because I was drinking out of a baby bottle, but I wasn't like sucking on the nipple. I was taking it off and drinking from it. Yeah. Because I didn't know how to ask to go to the water fountain at the time yet. And I wasn't like quite aware of the water fountain, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was you a You want to prove that you were a grown ass man too. Right, right. And can I tell you, you know, well, a grown ass man, I would have just stared him right in the eyes and sucked from that nipple, you know? <laughs> it, goes, it goes all the way around at that point. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, th this is a hard lesson learned for me is when I was maybe like still in elementary school, probably like fourth or fifth grade. I don't even know. But I remember some girl was like mean to me. Uh, I don't remember what she said, but I wrote her a letter using mm. every bad word that I knew. I, re I remember specifically I used the term two time in. In that Ooh. letter Ooh. <laughs> in fifth grade. I didn't know what that I still barely know what that means. But like <laughs> I just and I remember immediately she like turned the letter into like a teacher or whoever. My parents called me and my parents were just like, you moron. Like at the least don't don't do your revenge in writing as presentable evidence of someone else's being mean to you. Very quick, simple lesson. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that is yeah. that re that truly is the the biggest takeaway from that moment too. It's like don't put your stuff in writing, right? Like I mean, express your feelings, you know, tell somebody how they made, you know, how they made you feel. Uh sure, sure, sure. But, but come on, you got to hide the evidence. <laughs> and not just as evidence, you know, that actually is, I think, a valuable uh, interaction advice, which is that, you know, text is not always or usually is not the best medium for conflict resolution. 
Amen. But of course, at the time, my goal was not conflict resolution. It was to say every bad word I knew to this girl. <laughs> yeah, that that two timing hussy. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, <laughs> I'm wondering, you know, uh, being from the Ukraine, uh, obviously Ukraine, Russia, getting uh, tons of attention as always, you know, especially in the United States, uh, often extremely misrepresented, uh, misunderstood, and whatnot. We get uh, whatever version uh, the people want to tell us here. Uh, but uh, do you still have a a sense of pride in uh, in your motherland? not really i have a sense of pride or at least a sense of reverence for odessa because um it's there's just a lot of interesting cultural institution and history there for the mother i mean we left for a reason it was a lot of anti-semitism there even when i went back i just saw like swastikas drawn on rocks like pretty commonly and things like that nothing like i i don't actually know what like hate crime rates there are but i do know that like my parents and other people they knew as Jews were restricted and nobody was religious. Like they weren't Jews the same way that we would maybe discuss it here where like here it's discussed as like an ethnicity and a religion over there. Nobody really practiced religion. Religion was Mm -hmm. illegal and it was culturally like institutionally looked down upon, but people knew who Jews were because our paperwork said either Russian or Jew. You were not considered a Russian. You were a Jew. And so they had restrictions on how many Jews could go to a particular university, how many Jews could study a particular subject and things like that. So, you know, I, I don't see that as a fond thing or any, anything to to look uh, well upon. <laughs> Wave the flag. <laughs> yeah, no, right, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Uh, and also the country itself was in a transitionary period when we left, you know, like a lot of the stuff that that was really bad. Uh, was starting to loosen up like I I, when Gorbachev was uh, president, which was like basically my whole life in Russia, he started liberalizing some of the rigid cultural things like it became a little bit more okay to start discussing religion in the open. It became okay to maybe like I, I have one memory where my dad brought me to his work. He worked at a TV studio in uh odessa doing like audio video like technical stuff and i from when i was little like in my kindergarten in first grade when i went there they had portraits of grandfather lenin as you would refer to him and you would you know refer to him you know respectfully as grandfather lenin and at home you know everybody spoke very differently than they did outside the home so at home i heard you know criticisms and things like that and as a little kid you sometimes don't know what you can repeat and what you couldn't repeat and so i go to my dad's work and they're like putting up a portrait of lenin and i was just like you know what are you putting of a portrait of this ass like whatever word my parents used at home (laughs) and thankfully it was both this transitionary period where it wasn't as serious or it was beginning to not see as a serious indiscretion to criticize someone like that but also was a friend of my dad who basically just brought me to my dad and was like you need to get your kid out of here because he's going to get you in trouble Wow, what a memory. That is incredible. Yeah. Uh yeah. And and what a uh what a difference as well. Uh and just being able to not you know free speech around power uh or about yeah. power. Um yeah, but yeah. It's true. It's it's interesting um my uh, I'll just say a friend of mine who who runs a company and deals with a lot of 
um, Chinese manufacturers. And mm-hmm. it's funny because he was speaking to somebody there. This was like, you know, maybe two years ago or something. And, you know, they get similar to Russia, a lot of like propaganda about America and about whatever, like our situation here is. And he was talking to her and she was like, you know, like, it's so, so tough in America. You're so oppressed by your government. And uh, my buddy just responds. He's like, uh, oh, yeah. Hey, listen, um, how do you feel about your president? Because uh, I, I'm going to tell you right now, fuck Donald Trump. I hope he dies. I can say that. And I feel pretty comfortable saying it. You want to say that about your president? And she's just like, uh, uh, <laughs> just, you know, just <laughs> such a very basic, simple thing of like, I am free to say this. Some people might hate it, but I have no fear of my life saying this out loud on a recorded potentially phone line, you know? Yes. Uh, it's, it's a stark difference that, that I definitely related to, you know, with experience in Russia. Yeah, right. Yeah, for sure. How has the how has the experience been for your parents? Because they obviously they were born there um, and right. uh, and and you know, they left. Yeah, I've, they left a lot more than you, right? Like they left a lot, a lot of friends, probably family and, and stuff like that. How have your I mean, obviously, it's been a number of years now, but um, how have your parents adapted? Have they looked back at all or just appreciate that they can go back and visit every once in a while? I mean, they visited. We we all visited together. Uh, we have one friend of my dad that's, that stayed and everyone, as soon as the Berlin Wall fell and the system collapsed, Everyone that could get out of there got out of there, whether it was to America, um, to Germany, a lot, uh, a lot left to Israel, to Italy, because a lot of times it was not that easy to get to America. So I know a lot of uh, Soviet immigrants who had to go through other countries, whether it was Italy or Germany, like I said, and then a lot of them ended up staying in those countries. So uh, they have a lot of their friends either in America or just kind of spread throughout the world. And there's really mm-hmm. only just one friend of my dad's. Who who's still over there? Okay, gotcha, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Yeah, that's incredible. So you come here, age of seven. Uh, your parents decide, man, this this beautiful country. Look at look at all the options. We got fifty options, and they choose New Jersey uh, because clearly, right. you know. <laughs> but uh, well, so, so we came. You, you had to at the time. It was you know I think what they refer to as chain migration, where the laws were built in such a way, and this changed actually. We nearly had to move to Israel. It was actually pretty interesting because mm. um, my parents. So once you quit your job in the Soviet Union, that is because everybody works for the government. So that is you. You are now a traitor to the country essentially. So at that point, yeah. you have decided to leave. You quit your job. You need. You better get the fuck out of there. So. My parents were going to move, and then I remember they still curse him because Lautenberg, I believe, at the time, changed something with the immigration law that made it more difficult where we couldn't come to America. My parents were still trying to leave, but they didn't know where to go, and they were considering going to Israel, but they also didn't really want to go to Israel because one of the main things they didn't like about Ukraine was also that it was compulsory military service, and they didn't want my brother and I having to be forced to fight for a country that we might not agree with. So that made the decision to go to Israel difficult because they also have compulsory military service, although I wouldn't compare the experience to that in Russia. Um, But while my parents were deciding what to do, my mom became pregnant with my younger brother and her mother, my grandmother, was the doctor there. She's a pediatrician. And so my mom felt very comfortable having the pregnancy and delivering the baby in uh, in Ukraine. 
So she waited. And during the time that she waited, basically, we got the opportunity to come to America uh, through my grandfather, who had another daughter. And like like I said, like through this, what they describe as chain migration, uh, sometimes as a pejorative. But either way, you know, that's how we ended up coming. And they lived in New Jersey. And so we kind of got set up with our first um, cause we came as Jewish refugees from the Soviet Union. So there was an organization okay. that helped us. I got all my like hand me down clothes through them. They found us like a subsidized department in a, in like a project housing through them. And, and my parents took English classes through them. Uh, I got circumcised through them when I was seven years old. <laughs> wow. Okay. There you go. That's a memorable experience. That's right. I know it actually <laughs> is. Normally it is actually not. is. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, it normally is not. And I remember quite vividly being handed one of those little football video game machines where like it's a static background LCD screen and you yep. see the little character move. And uh-huh. I played that while they nipped the tip. Wow. Was that was yeah. that an expectation? It's like, hey, you're coming here. We got to do this. No. Was, and you know what? I didn't even think to ask my mom here because, like I said, they're not religious. They yeah. didn't do circumcisions in Russia at all. And then years later, when I started thinking about this and writing some stand up about it and stuff, I go to my mom. I was like, why did you even have this done? Is this something you believed in? And she's like, no, when we came over, the organization told us that everybody in America does it. So we didn't want you to be you know, different. So we just had it done. I was like, all right, fair enough. <laughs> Incredible. Well, Boris, I was wondering when we were going to start talking about your penis, and I'm glad we got there. That was on my notes uh, to it get didn't to take this us point. Too long. So, yeah, no, that wasn't too bad. 30, yeah, we had. I had to watch minutes, it. Again. Honestly, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would have <laughs> could have done without the can of fish in the middle, but uh, no, <laughs> that is uh, Boris. That is potentially the first acceptable reason that I've heard someone tell me why they live in New Jersey. So, congratulations. Um, and. <laughs> And no longer will make fun of you for living there. Uh, but um, the the uh, but it, you know it's it's crazy because you're you're seventh grade, you get circumcised, and and then seven, and years, then, seven years old, seven years seven old, seven years old. That's seventh grade. That would have been that would have been a lot. Yeah. Um, it, well, it was already was a lot. Let's be honest. But um, so yeah. so and now uh, <clears throat> come you said like come third grade ish. You start you come back to uh, a traditional public school that doesn't have an ESL program, the one that's by you, um, and it's. Some point in time, uh, I know you wind up going to Rutgers. Um, shout out to Rutgers. Um, when does comedy come into your life? When does when does stand up become a thing that you are interested in? Do you watch it early on and be like, oh, who's this person? You know, watching Carlin on TV and wondering if you could do that, or you know, how did it come into your world? Um, well, I sort of progressed to stand up but i think my very first experience in doing comedy is two things in high school i joined uh the improv club uh and so i did improv in high school and then there was a poetry club called la bohem and they they had poetry readings like the cafe la bohem cafe readings mm-hmm. and Incredible. they had uh and they had a publication and so i joined and wrote like parody or comedy stuff and sort of started reading these like comedic short stories and prose at these cafes which are fun because no one else was doing comedy there so it felt like i was like a little shit stir kind of subverting (laughs) 
the scene, but everybody was nice. They included, I still have somewhere like under a bed at my parents, like the booklets from La Boheme with other people's poetry and my funny little stories. And, uh, and so I started doing that. And then I also eventually started putting the, the funny poem ones to music because I was playing guitar and I could get in that. That's a fun, real weird story of uh, my guitar experiences in high school. But I started writing kind of funny songs and then I did it throughout college and I did shows here and there. And then when I first moved to New York after college, I started doing the guitar comedy. And there were a couple comics that that uh, gave me good advice and feedback, which was basically ditch the guitar dork and and uh as much as as much as i kyle cease he can make he made it i can do it. yeah and you know what as much as i love because i liked stephen lynch when i was in high school Mm -hmm. and i as much as i do still enjoy musical comedy i came to the realization that it works way better when you sing well you know it just it not only is less grating to the ears of your audience, but also it sells the joke better. You know, when something feels like it's more committed and delivered, it's it, like when it sounds like a serious song, but is funny, the sure. joke hits better. Like Stephen Lynch, you know, has a beautiful voice. Yeah. And so I, uh, when I did it, I, you know, it was funny, but still listening back to myself, I'm like, these jokes would sell better if I were better a better singer but then also i would start doing shows and i would do jokes in between you know while i'm changing songs or chatting to the audience and i kind of slowly started realizing that i liked just talking i liked just ditching the guitar i felt like i could squeeze more jokes in a shorter amount of time whereas sometimes you know a song can be one joke stretched into three minutes basically whereas with stand-up i can really make sure to to keep it dense with punchlines yeah 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 i love it the guy who decides that the singing voice is the reason why he can't continue with the uh, one of the reasons why he can't continue with the music the musical comedy is the same guy who sang fever to his wife at their wedding uh like a boss i might add like a boss it was incredible uh but yeah i agree with you you know you mentioned you made an astute point around the the more uh, the higher the higher quality of the talent, the more the comedy sells. Right? It's like Lonely Island. If Lonely Island had super crappy production behind their videos, uh, I don't think we would all think it was as incredible as it truly is. But it's, it's the, sure. the dedication uh, to the production of it, right? Um, and Mother Lovers with Justin Timberlake, right? Like the 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 video of all that is hysterical. Um, so, but yeah, but that it is that juxtaposition that truly makes it funnier. Uh, so I can hear you on that. That. I can hear you on that, but I do. Yeah. I mean, I, you, you mentioned it, so I got to bring it back because I don't know this story. What what is what is the uh, the tale behind your uh, guitar playing in high school? I know this is going to be your episode uh, with the most like disturbing shit per minute. But basically, I knew that uh, before, so it's fine. Yeah, you you knew what you were getting yourself into. <laughs> well, so like I said, this is truly a weird, but it worked out well for me. So I was self-taught and I played I played in a blues band with my friends in high school uh like kind of blues classic rock and mm-hmm. and I and I wanted to get better at like sheet music and and actually be able to sight read and things like that so my friend took lessons at the school he recommended in uh Metuchen, the neighboring town mm-hmm. and it was owned by this Russian woman whose husband was like a 
famous, I think, concert violinist. And she really only cared about the violin department, maybe the piano department at the school. The guitar was kind of like a side thing so they could, you know, make more money, basically. And in the time that I started taking guitar lessons there, they probably changed teachers like two or three times. Like they had some burnout taking the train from the city and like, Mm -hmm. like just kind of cycling through. They couldn't hold on to anybody. And uh, they finally got this one guitar teacher that um, I don't remember his name, but I remember he looked a lot like Gene Wilder and he was uh, pretty weird. I can't say I had like a particular read on like what his deal was, but I could tell something was a little off or weird, but he seemed fine enough to me at the time. And so I they had a recital and I, I played and I'd already been playing for a while. So I was decently ahead of the other students at this recital. And so then all of a sudden, maybe a couple months later, and one detail to add is the, te- the head of this school really liked me because I built them their first website. I was Russian. She was Russian. And I made their first site on GeoCities. So she was very appreciative. And uh, because I was like, you know, what are you crazy? You're not on the Internet at the time. She's like, what is Internet? You know, and so (laughs) so she already liked me. And then randomly, uh, again, not even maybe like four or five months after I'd taken lessons there, if that she calls me and says, we need a substitute teacher tomorrow. I'm I think 15, maybe 16 years old at most. So it's, it's entirely like in an American context, even pretty inappropriate. But she's like, we need a substitute teacher tomorrow. Can you do it? It pays, I think, like twenty two dollars an hour, which at the Whoa. time I, I worked at a bagel cafe for like four dollars and something cents an hour. <laughs> and I worked at another cafe at the mall that I'd pretty sure I'd been fired from at this point for also, you know, like whatever minimum wage was at the mall. And I'm like, my God, that's crazy. Yes, I will do it, of course. And so I went in and I substitute taught like maybe seven or eight students, one after another for, I think it was like either somewhere half hour lessons, somewhere hour lessons. And I didn't know why she'd asked me or why this teacher was gone. And uh, and so uh, the day went fine. I, I did an okay job. Some of these students were adults too, like 30-something-year-olds. And, and so they were all kind of like impressed that they thought I was like some prodigy or something when really I was like pretty underqualified. <laughs> but enough, <laughs> I was just good enough that they didn't know yeah. how underqualified I was. And so then she asked me to come back and substitute again. And then after two times, I find out from reading in the papers and from her that this Gene Wilder looking motherfucker got arrested for like sexually molesting a student. And what actually happened was, and this is where it gets really disturbing. And again, you knew what you were getting into here. <laughs> but, yeah, no, please go deeper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so basically, like, I, I, from my understanding, this doesn't get any like anything crazy or graphic. Like, he was just kind of like, seemed to be inappropriately, like, physically uh, touching students. And this girl complained to her mom, and the mom asked to sit in on the lesson. And at the lesson that the mother sat in on, he got her a tank top as a gift and wanted her to try it on while he like turned around. The mother immediately like because so there's like something wrong up here, too. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it's not just like being a creep, but also like thinking you could do it in front of some, like just really bizarre stuff. And so the mother like grabbed her kids, stormed out, called the cops. But this guy got arrested. Apparently, they didn't do a background check because he'd done this once before at another school. I found out afterwards. 
And that is how I ended up teaching guitar for the next six, seven years. (laughs) (laughs) 22 bucks an hour. (laughs) I actually, so she brought me, she dropped me back down because now I was no longer substituting. I was regular. So she dropped me down to like 18, which was still, you know, fucking crazy. And then, and then slowly, because I just started taking it more and more for granted. I was not, like I said, I was literally like learning stuff to teach it the next day to somebody because I didn't know sheet music that well. And that's kind of how I learned is I ended up being self-taught so that I could teach others and not be found out as a fraud. So, and I was in high school, so I was not a responsible person. I was showing up hungover. Like I'm not once but multiple times did i like have to go to the back and like throw up behind the school because i was so hungover when i showed up for this teaching job (laughs) i had keys to the place i used to take my high school girlfriend at the time and we'd have like sex in one of the rooms because i had access it was the only as a high school kid i have no other private place that i have keys to that's mine that i know nobody will be at Mm-hmm. I jumped on the photocopier. I photocopied my balls and ass on the photocopier. Sure. There's no logical reason to do that, but I had access to a photocopier and it was all <laughs> mine alone in a room. And at 15, 16, it just felt like a thing to do with a photocopier. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Incredible. I got, I'm yeah, so I made glad it up we to circled like, back to that. <laughs> truly. <laughs> Through college, I think up until like junior year of college, I worked there and then I quit because I was like, okay, I can't, I'm not going to be a guitar teacher forever. I need to just take this comfort away from me so that I can figure out what to do next. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Wow, that is outrageous. I mean, truly living the mantra of fake it till you make it, uh, right? Yeah. Like, like learning, learning the sheet music the day before going in and teaching it post, uh, post puke, uh, and, and getting it done on a daily basis. And people liked me. I was a good teacher. I taught bass guitar too. I didn't know how to play bass guitar. I kind of just learned how to play bass guitar. You know, if you, if you can play guitar, there's obviously certain fundamentals, but yeah, I remember I taught these twin brothers that were both a foot and a half taller than me from the neighboring town and one played guitar and one played bass. And they were like burnouts and, and it was not difficult to learn enough to teach them, you know? I mean, clearly, I mean, clearly you were at least decent at the job, decent enough to not get complaints that you were there for seven years. So well, well done, brother. Well yeah, done. I mean, I'm I'm criticizing myself in the context of what should be a person that teaches guitar at a school, which is not <laughs> what I was. But, you know, you know, beyond imposter syndrome, I, I did enough of a job. People liked it. I, I liked teaching guitar at, at, at least some points. And making that kind of money in high school is always a good thing. And it's uh, crazy. And yeah, I saved nothing. Clear, yeah, I was gonna. Yeah, I was gonna say. I also. I worked. Um, I was a caddy in the Hamptons in uh, in high school, <clears throat> and so we would. I would get up in the morning, and my hometown's probably forty five minutes to an hour away from the Hamptons. We'd get up before the sunrise, truck out there to make sure that we were there by the first tea time at these. Got the one golf course that I worked at, uh, the initiation fee, not annual dues, the initiation fee was $350,000. Holy um, shit. And then you paid your annual dues on top of that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there were only 100 members, um, sick cars in the parking lot, right? But uh, I would make $100 a bag and you would carry two bags in a round. And so I'm technically wow. making you know, uh, what's that $50 an hour and then plus tips, right. Um, as a caddy and my car had a great sound system by the end of every summer. Uh 
And uh-huh, I, me too. <laughs> it was great. What was in the trunk? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, for oh, sure. Maybe. A couple of tens, a couple of twelves, you know, whatever fit back there. And yeah. Uh, and so yeah, for sure, uh, definitely neons under the car. You know, we out here. Um, and so uh, <laughs> that, that's where the that's neons. Where the I did was. not. But I had a big woofer box in my Pontiac Bonneville. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. That's a big trunk too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that'll rattle. You got to put some uh, some of that Dynamat on there. So the and I and rattle. I didn't. And I rattled. I did oh, not. And no, I rattled. No, no, no. <laughs> No point in this podcast have I judged you. I'm now judging you. Uh, yeah, I know. Judge you for the sardines. Um, I got I got cheap <laughs> looking at that Crutchfield audio catalog. Oh man, that Crutchfield that was my version of porn. That and that porn. was the jam. That and porn <laughs> were my version of porn at that yeah. age. Um, <laughs> uh, that's awesome. I love it. <laughs> so so Boris, you uh, obviously. Um, you know, you mentioned that you did improv. Um, that's how you and I met doing North Coast and, and whatnot. At that point, you had also started to do more and more stand-up as well. Um, and and stand-up is really your jam. I know since since you have really left improv, uh, maybe you do it occasionally uh, for fun, but you're not on any teams anymore or anything like that. And, and stand-up has truly become where you have pointed the ship. Um, and stand-up comedy is is a fascinating road. Um, I did stand up for a long time. I remember um, I used to open up all the time when I was down in North Carolina and South Carolina. Um, I would open up for my college improv team. I get to do 10 or 15 minutes before all of our shows, 200 people in the audience packed, sold out. I would crush and be incredible. I would get to play at, at local, uh, at local stand-up spots in the North and South Carolina and whatnot. I moved to New York um, and my very first stand-up show um, was at O'Charlie's in Times Square. I was one of those people that was definitely passing out the flyers outside. Um, and, and I went and did it. Uh, and I bombed. Like I was, <laughs> I absolutely bombed. Uh, it was horrible. I felt like giving the, like I had sold a couple of tickets. I wanted to like give them money back to these two, these two, like it was a mother and daughter that I convinced to come in. And uh, I absolutely bombed this old school comic named Joe Rocha uh, came over and pulled me aside. And he said, uh, I remember the first, Joe. you remember Joe, right? Yeah. He said, this is the first time, your first time doing this, man. I said, and I just, I, I couldn't lie to him. I was like, nah, I've been doing this for like three, four years. I was like, but this is my first set in New York City. He's like, oh, you were doing it in the South before. He's like, well, he's like, let me be the first one to tell you, man. And I say this with all sorts of love. You just started over. Welcome to New York. Um, and, and it truly was right. Like, I mean, open mic nights performing in front of seven other stand-up comics who had no desire to hear your, your set that you also paid $10 to do doing bringer shows. Cause I didn't know any better. Um, and those kinds of things, the stand-up road is so lonely. <laughs> it is a cold place, especially when you're first starting out. Um, yeah, you're just starting out for sure. Yeah, for sure. I know there is community as you as you last long, and people see that you're actually in it for the long haul, and you're cutting your teeth, um, whatever that sentence means. But uh, and so, but stand up is a is is a tough choice. Um, and so, I'm wondering, what is it about stand up that you absolutely love, and what keeps you coming back and doing it? Um, well. I think for starters, you know, there's obviously kind of I'm not, I don't want to if ego is the right word, but it's the fact that you're 
personally responsible for the highs and the lows. So, you know, it's harder when it, when you bomb, obviously. Although I will say, you know, as you build that community and you start getting friends that'll laugh at you bombing in the back of the room, like you, you start <laughs> taking it with a little more grace because, you know, bombing is, is the hardest when you're like just a few years in because it's one of those things where you feel like you shouldn't be doing it or you don't want to be doing it anymore and it feels embarrassing. But then once you've been doing it long enough, you you sort of know that it's happening for a particular reason and you, you obviously never want to and you want to get out of it. But once you've been doing it long enough, you know that either you're battling a TV playing the game next to you on the wall or you're following a crowd that's just like not on the same page as you for whatever reason and it's not working out and it the low is not quite as much, especially when you learn to laugh at yourself about it. But the highs are incredible because, you know, the high is just you and it's a very... Um, you know, they say that stand up is a conversation, not a monologue. It's just that the audience's side of the conversation is the laughter. Mm. So you're kind of communicating in this way where there's a, there's I don't know if there's any other art form. I mean, in improv, you have that immediate feedback, which is the laughter of the audience. But you don't have quite as much control because you're not performing solo of course correction because you have a whole team and and obviously that has its own dynamics for course correction but with stand-up i feel like you know if the laugh either doesn't hit or it doesn't hit quite in the way that you intended or you know sometimes somebody will laugh at a setup and you're like oh that's weird that, I, that wasn't supposed to be the funny part <laughs> and then you're like oh actually i didn't even realize there was this funny thing about it or i didn't realize i was miss you know communicating or or, or putting something out there that I didn't realize I was. And so there's this immediate real-time course correction where, you know, when it's great, I, I don't know that anything else compares to it because you're just um, like, you know, conducting a room in this, in this way that I don't know that there's anything else like it. There is, I agree with you, Boris. There is no high, like a stand-up high. It is just such a, uh, it's, it's ethereal feeling. It's incredible. Uh, and, uh, and it's something that I definitely, uh, I missed once I started doing more improv, right. And the X, cause I, cause honestly, I found Upright Citizens Brigade and started taking classes there. And that's also how I built friendships when I moved to New York city and I right. wasn't getting those friendships from the standup community. And I was getting them in an improv and I was like, well, cool. I want friends. I'm an extrovert. I'll go over here. Right. And, and that's kind of yeah. what led me away from the standup uh, side of it, because like you said, especially when you're starting out, there's no high like a stand-up high, but there is no low like a stand-up low. And those yeah. lows do you get to be able to explain them more as you learn what happened and what didn't happen. And uh, and now that I'm back on stages by myself again as a professional speaker, um, I can now see some of the areas in stand-up where it's like, oh, that's why I beat myself up there but didn't have to, or I could have been more surgical um, with how I assessed that and would have been better faster in the stand-up world, right? And uh, it's interesting. Now when I've gone back and done stand-up because I've become very comfortable again on stage by myself – I'm good again. Right. Um, or like, or like, I'm just, or at least more because the part of a lot of standup is also the audience wants to feel like you're in control. Like, like I got right, you. For sure. you came out here. I got you. I'm going to take care of you. Right. Just sit back have a stand another sip of your martini or your paps blue ribbon. Um, and, and yeah. I'm going to take care of you. And there's a confident swagger about great standup comedians that is sexy. 
Uh, and it's something that I've always admired watching you on stage. And it's cool because we got to do improv together. Um, but the improv muscle, as you mentioned, completely different to the stand-up muscle. And your swagger on stage is uh, it's awesome, man. Like just the way the way you hold the microphone, the way you're laughing at yourself, and uh, like almost before you even say your own punchline, sometimes is a little bit of a chuckle, which is like the audience's hint to like buckle up because you're about to get hit with this, um, right? Like it's just it's it's all it's amazing. It's it's really cool to watch, um, and uh, when it comes to and when it comes to stand up, when it comes to stand up, it's interesting because you have to have a mindset for it. Like you can't just all of a sudden get on stage and just start to tell jokes, right? Like stand-up's one of those professions that audience members love to tell you, I can do what you do, pal. Um, right? They love to say it and they can't. Right. At my all. friend's hilarious. My friend's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I will say going off of what you just said though, it's it's interesting going back, even if even after taking a break, there's even stand-ups that start later in life. And there's something to just being more comfortable with yourself and who you mm. are that helps even outside of the experience of doing stand-up where once you're more comfortable in your own skin like that makes a huge difference which you know when i started stand-up i wasn't yet i was both learning stand-up and learning to be myself so it's one of those things where the audience does recognize it and especially depending on the room and you know people talk about the difference between like alt rooms or like urban rooms and a lot of urban rooms especially will smell Fear. And if you're a guy that's going up there and just trying to read your jokes off of your notebook, no one wants that shit, especially in like clubs and like places that are a little less like UCB or alt room or like kind of like a, a nerdy cultural center type thing and more yeah. just regular people that are there to get drunk and like watch you entertain them. Like they want to see you be comfortable. They don't want to be empathizing with you being nervous up there because that's going to make them uncomfortable because they're, you know, people are empathetic. They feel that on you and it's, they're not there to feel sorry for you, you know? Yeah. 100%. 100%. (laughs) There's also this thing that, that you've mentioned to me before that I think is, uh, is hysterical and astute that uh, a lot of times when you think about comedians, especially comedians on the come up, um, you don't want to, you kind of want to feel like they're this like grungy person who's alongside with you, right? They're kind of, there's someone who's just like, uh, <clears throat> like this is, this is, they're, they're out here grinding it out. Um, there's a mindset that they're grinding it out, but uh, you don't want to know that they also work in finance on Wall Street and are, are crushing it, right? Like they don't want to see you bomb your set at the open mic and hop in your five series um, and right. take off, right? Like it's so interesting that there's a, there's a life style around stand-up would you agree with that yeah i think it's it's improved a little bit where it used to be really you know the classic view of the stand-up from years ago was just like just unhealthy doing blow and drinking like that used to be a big thing and i think that's changed significantly i think there are now you look at someone like seinfeld or someone that's on the road that's going and being disciplined and working out and doing these various things where i think that stereotype has moved away, but there is certainly uh, elements of, you know, resentfulness or like someone's not a real comic if they're putting too much attention in their life outside of comedy, which includes everything from having a job to even like having a stable relationship and a family forget about. <laughs> and it's bad. It's bad logic too. like, it's, it's also a thing that I 
felt and got more from people five to 10 years ago. Whereas now I think people have a healthier perspective. I now know too many comics that have great television credits that are still working as movers so that they can make over $30,000 a year. I know comics that are that are, you know, you would consider to be the top, you know, one percent that are able to make a living out of it out of so many that are not making a great living compared to like almost anything else, you know. And then, you know, you have your even smaller percentage that are able to really thrive on it. But I know a good amount of comics now that I respect that I consider great comics that are going to keep working their side hustles because they want a living standard for themselves or maybe for their family. Mm -hmm. That's just greater than this, than this art form is able to provide for most people, which yeah. is fine. I, I don't think there's anything embarrassing about it. You know, you want to be able yeah. to hustle. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think there's anything bad about it either. I'm wondering for you, you know, you've been in the game for a minute now. Have you noticed your lifestyle changes, right? You're now happily married uh, and, and whatnot. Yeah. Do you still go back to the the old Boris from time to time, right? Earlier you were talking about how you're eating sardines over the trash can, so you don't got to <laughs> worry about making a dish, right? Like like some of that, like, yeah. I guess what we would consider, like, especially as men, that bachelor lifestyle, right? Do you see yourself kind of finding some of that still in your ways? Or, or if I talk to your to your wife would she tell me there's a couple of weird things boris does can you talk to him I'm, about it <laughs> i'm sure she will list a whole list of weird things that i do but <laughs> thankfully she's pretty good at talking to me about it herself uh but but you know one of the things that i love about her but uh yeah for sure i mean what's funny is i was saying to you earlier that i had uh my first road gig this past weekend in you know the last time i performed on the road i was funny enough in uh i played a comedy club in thailand on my honeymoon right after i got married as sure. you know i got married february 29th right before the pandemic hit new york and then i flew to hong kong and thailand with my wife on our honeymoon <laughs> and this is how much an angel my wife is is that she put up with me doing a set in thailand during our honeymoon so she's very very supportive uh extremely understanding person which is obviously somebody that you need if, if you're going to be a comic you know still retaining even part of that lifestyle which which i think i've it, it's helped me find a balance for sure mm -hmm. and um yeah it was one of those things where when we first started dating that was immediately on my mind is that i want to build a life with this person and i am willing to compromise my living standards i am willing to sleep on couches and, and travel and particularly uncomfortable ways to save money to make the most out of a gig yeah. but i don't want her to have to do that because she doesn't have to do it. So I don't want her to have to do it just because she's with me. So immediately I started, you know, in behaving differently and thinking ahead more and planning things more as far as how to build a life with her. And then this past weekend, I did this road gig where we drove five hours to New Hampshire, played this gig, slept at this, like, it honestly like jarred me a little bit because I have been traveling with my wife. And when we travel, we stay at a decent Airbnb or hotel room. And we got this like days in where it was three of us in a room with two twin beds, one comic with a, on one side of me snoring, sharing my bed, the other one on the other bed with a sleep apnea machine connected to his face, <laughs> a bathroom with like a ceiling that's slightly dipping because a pipe is clearly leaking onto the drywall. And I'm like, all oh, right. This didn't used to be unusual for me at all. <laughs> now this is a bit unusual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> what a visual. Uh, and, and, uh, yeah, that's also part of the growing old, right? Now you're hanging out with your, hanging out with your boys and one's on the sleep apnea machine. The other one is, you know, I don't know who knows talking to their counselor while you're on the road trip. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's <laughs> the, the, the way we change and mature, but yeah, the, I agree. And it's funny because I am someone who will still at the age of 38, almost 39, like I'm still like, yeah, I'll crash on a couch. Right. Like, I'm, and I have no, I have a bad back, right. I've had back surgery. I've had, like I have deserved, I, I make enough money that I don't have to stay on a couch. And so part of it's like the extrovert part. It's like, Oh my gosh, my friends who I haven't seen in forever. Yeah. I'll stay at your couch. We can maximize our time together, but there definitely right. is still part of it. That's like, eh, but I'm not away from my wife and like, I can save some money. And so let's do that. Right. Like I'm someone who hates paying for parking. I will drive around Me the too. area. Yeah. I cannot you two fifty for this shit. What I, you break a window, you know, talking about. Um, and so, yeah, no. And, and so like, there are still parts of me that are still that frugal, like, let me pinch some pennies, uh, to make it work, uh, which totally. is not true in all parts of my life. Um, but it's, it comes up randomly in those spaces. Yeah. And, and my wife's helped me eliminate that in parts where it actually doesn't make sense you know i had all these habits like eating fish over a garbage can or like you know bringing a flask to bars because i'm trying to save my i used to bring bagged lunches to open mics you know like i at one point was working at uh at MTV, funny enough, or it was actually Viacom in ad sales for like $27,000 a year, I believe, when I first moved to New York. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I was, I had an apartment for, I think, 600 a month, and I was bringing lunch everywhere I could and doing, and I got so used to that. I got so used to cooking. I like cooking, but it became a thing where sometimes my wife would be like, Literally, you're not saving money because the amount of time you're spending preparing your meal rather than focusing on your work, which now can if I'm producing or writing or directing a video or editing something, the hourly rate is enough that just order food. You're spending more money not working right now and cooking. And so like it took certain things like that where certain conveniences I brought back into my life because I realized not only can I afford it, but it's actually more affordable to do that because I'm losing important productivity. (laughs) Yep, that's real. Uh, That is that is so real. That's so real. You know, we talked a little bit about the mindset of a comedian. And I I guess here's uh, as we wrap up, uh, what I'm curious to hear is that. A lot of comedians, one would assume that they have a jaded perspective on life, right? Because you have to have a perspective. You have to have an angle um, and in order to, you know, whether whether it's observational or the way you tell stories or whatever, there's got to be an angle. Um, And so I'm wondering now, I mean, you've now been doing comedy for so long that this is probably not where you are, but maybe it still is. But like, I feel like when I have conversations with stand-up comics, the conversation is different. Like there's times where I feel like they're trying out material on me or the way that they're pointing out things that I do. It's like they're writing their own little jokes in the moment. Like you need to take a napkin out, right? What you just said about me down for yourself. Right. Um, right? Like, (laughs) and so, but sometimes there's this like jaded perspective in conversation that I wonder that I wonder sometimes, is it hard to enjoy life or just take in moments when you're constantly like, where's the funny? What's the next thing? The comedy rule. Okay, well, if this is true, then what else is true, right? Have you noticed any of that for yourself? Is that that a phase that you went through? Or do you think it's just a place where comedians live? 
I think it really depends person to person. And I almost started going down the route of maybe saying that it's like maybe a younger, more green comedians game or even improvisers will do this sometimes where they're doing bits in, in a context where it's not really appropriate. But I'll tell you, like I immediately certain friends came to mind. I have a friend that's like a phenomenal comic. I love him. But sometimes he just cannot turn it off to where... <laughs> Uh, you know, it's frustrating. You want to have a normal conversation or just share the attention. You know, it's just also not fun sometimes when someone is just dominating the attention and not recognizing. It actually made me realize this is if anybody out there wants to uh, develop this. I, I think I had a really good idea, which is <laughs> and, tell me if you've heard this before. I think this is a really good idea, not just for comics, but for everybody is an app for your like Apple Watch that all it does is listen and it tells you what percentage of the time you're talking in a conversation. I think that's a single data point that would be so valuable for people if you went home and it was like, oh, by the way, in all your conversations today, you talked 95 percent of the time. <laughs> yes, that can't I, be hard, right? It can recognize your voice. Yep, it can. Yeah, yep. it's already I, everything else. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Might as well send it all to the U.S. government and the Chinese government and the Russian government. Yeah, let Let's them decide. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I th I think personally, I do notice sometimes I, I try to be decent about it because I am on Twitter or writing stuff often enough where my wife will point it out sometimes and things like that. <laughs> and I try to write the joke and be done with it. But there are certainly times where I start laughing in a conversation and write it down. But you know what? Here's the other funny part is to go back to people who are like, oh, I could do this while watching. One really important difference between stand-up and being funny in a social environment or a conversation is context. In a social environment or conversation, when you're being funny, you can be a really funny person, but the context is already there for you. In a stand-up environment, you have to create the context for the audience or reference the context for the audience and then add your punchlines. And that's a lot of times the harder part in standup is bringing the audience into the same context or entering their context and then making jokes based on that shared experience that you, you weren't just naturally initially having. You have to create a shared experience. And that's the thing that people don't realize when they're like, oh, my friend is hilarious. I'm like, right, because you're already sharing experience and people would, you know, that's a human trait. Of course, I should hope so that you're able to make jokes and be funny in conversations. But the thing that separates it on a professional level is being able to really naturally and before people even realize, put them in a com context where like we're now all making jokes about this thing. But it didn't naturally arrive there. You think it naturally arrived there, but I controlled that and I made that happen. Or I took where it naturally arrived and I made you travel with it where I wanted you to so that I could make these jokes that I've been honing for years, you know, that yes. feel to you like, like I just improvised them because you don't realize I just took you there. Yeah, man, that was beautifully put. And I have, I'm frequently asked, you know, how do you teach someone to be funny? And first off, I hate that question. Uh, it's a terrible question. Uh, and yeah. I, and I, because I, I rarely know how to answer it. Right. But I love the way that you just put that, Boris, is that the difference between someone who is funny socially and someone who is, and a stand up comic is, is context. And you're right. Great stand ups are incredible storytellers. 
even no, no matter what kind of a standup they are, they're great storytellers, right? I mean, even uh, even someone who's just kind of like a setup punch, setup punch, they still need to bring you somewhere so you could be in the moment with them. Uh, right. And and yeah, that that is so beautifully put. I I actually had someone. I gave a I gave a speech just this past weekend. And, uh, and, and, and one of the women that, that asked me to come through afterwards, we were just kind of chopping it up. And she was like, how did you just say all of that? Like you just went for an hour, kept our attention for an hour, kept us engaged on a zoom call. And she's like, I didn't see you look down once. I didn't, you didn't even pull up a PowerPoint. You just went and you kept my attention the whole time. How did you do that? She's like, did you just make all of that up? And I said, uh, no, but thank you for that. Always a compliment. Um, but right, like no, it said there. There are more. There are moments that have been carefully crafted. Right, like there's a point where uh, I talk about how I busted my knee at my senior prom dance at Shania Twain's. Man, I feel like a woman. And my principal rushed over to me and he handed me a few ice cubes. And I, you know, those glass. <laughs> and so I had to think to myself: are these, are these ice cubes for my glass of water or my inflammation? Right, and like that was a careful choice to keep the rhythm of glass of water inflammation, right? Because there is science in the rhythm of words and the way that we bring it, like it's all calculated and right. standups are surgeons with the way they package wor uh, wordplay uh, in an efficient way, but yet also word paint. Um, it's really incredible. And I love the way you put that, man. Yeah. And 50% of the time it's accidental. You just have to yes. realize, realize when you did it and, and try to repeat it. <laughs> try to remember it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like there was something yeah. that they laughed at one point. When was that? Uh, right. Yeah. Like when they laugh at the setup and you're like, okay, all right. Uh, yeah, for sure. Boris, I, I love spending time with you, man. Um, I miss That's you a why. lot moving away. Uh, it's been tough not seeing you do, but I'm, I'm grateful for the time that we do get to spend. And I'm really pumped to, to have you in the diner, brother. We've sat in many a diner before uh, and, and had many a meal. And it's, I'm glad to have you in this one too, dude. Likewise, man. Thank you so much for having me. Hell yeah, brother. I appreciate you. All right, man. Hang on one second. <clears throat> Y'all, that was my guy, Boris Hyken. Feel free to check him out. He's definitely all over YouTube. Uh, again, it's the Boris K uh, on social media. Best place to find him. He posts a lot of hysterical things on Instagram. Uh, I cannot recommend following him enough and checking him out if he comes to a city near you. Uh, and until next time, my friends, thank you so much for hanging out in the diner with me. Please tell your friends about this show. If you think anybody would like it, it'd be really special to pass it on. It's the best way for us to get more folks in the diner here with us. And y'all, until next time, do me a favor. Keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions. You all take care and have a great night. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Diner Talks with James. It was so much fun getting to hang out with you and finish our milkshakes in that squeaky red leather booth. <laughs> <laughs> if you do me a favor and smash that subscribe button, that would be dope. And also, if you could leave a review on iTunes, well, <laughs> come on now, you're going to make me blush. <laughs> also, if you want to be a part of the action, we record these live on YouTube Live every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to YouTube and type in James T. Robo and smash that red subscribe button so you know when we go live next. Also, 
While we're on the subject, I'm James T. Robo all over the internet. I post meaningful content on Instagram, witty content on Twitter. Let's get connected in some other places, folks. And as always, if you're interested in learning more about the guest tonight, please check out the show notes. My friends, until next time, keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions. Y'all take care.